The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five licking their wounds. Stocks coming off the first back-to-back down days in nearly a month as earnings fail to get anyone excited. Doubling down, Guggenheim, Scott Minard, standing by his call for bond yields to fall, You'll hear from the man himself coming up, a verdict in Minneapolis. As former police officer Derek Chauvin is found guilty on all counts in the murder of George Floyd, live reaction on the ground in a moment. Back on Wall Street, Netflix shares tanking amid a major slowdown in customers. The last one shareholder of he's buying on the news. And it's Cooperman versus Warren. What the billionaire investor is saying to Elizabeth Warren as he turns down an invitation to testify next week. It is Wednesday, April 21st, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us on a very busy Wednesday. And let's kick it off with a look at stock futures. They are mixed to higher. Of course, it has been a weak couple of days for stocks. Dow down 256 yesterday. NASDAQ off another 1%. And the S&P 500 seeing its first two-day losing streak since late March, down another 28 points. We are seeing futures mixed, Dow futures up a tad, NASDAQ down. But again, keep in mind, it has been still a pretty good April, even with the last couple of days. The NASDAQ 100 up 5.5% this month. S&P 500 still up 4%. Of course, got to see if this is just a few-day trend, the last couple of days of weakness, or maybe the start of something a little more serious for the equity markets. In the bond market, let's take a look at yields because yields have been a big part of the story the last couple of months. 10-year note back below 1.6 at 1.58%. And remember, a few weeks ago, Scott Minard kind of shocked everybody by saying he thought that yields were actually going to go lower. Maybe the only big guy out there saying it. And he is back here live in minutes to double down on that call. And call this your stock of the morning. Netflix shares getting whacked after reporting a huge miss in customer growth for the first quarter. Stock down 8% or $44 a share. Global paid net subscriber additions coming in at just under 4 million versus 6.2 million expected by analysts. We'll get much more on that Netflix move coming up a bit later on in the show. Let's take a look globally. Right across the screen in Asia, Japan, which had been really rocking the beginning of the year, down another 2% overnight last night. Again, something else to watch there. Hong Kong down nearly as much. But in Europe, a different story. We are seeing gains across the board. Not big ones, but we are higher, led by the UK and the France CAC 40. UK up three-tenths of 1%. But all of this can wait. Because now... America's top story. The conviction of former police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd as the jury finds him guilty 
on all counts. Frank Collin joining us now live in Minneapolis with the very latest and the reaction which carried on into the night. Frank, good morning. Good morning to you, Brian. Uh, the death of George Floyd and the historic trial of Derek Chauvin that took place in this courthouse you see right here behind me, seen as a major inflection point for law enforcement and for American history. Hundreds of people gathered outside of this courthouse, really expressing a range of emotions about that conviction. Some were crying, some were hugging, and some were shouting after Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts. Many of them said they saw this as a victory for this city, for this nation, and for the black community. It was really a dramatic reversal from just the day before when the jury deliberated, and many were anxious, tense, and concerned about the possibility of social unrest related to this trial. My emotion during the trial was anxiety. I mean, a heightened level of anxiety, uh, concerned about which way that this would turn out um, and what the reaction of the city would be. Um, but to look at it now, it's like the day of Jubilee, um, you know, a celebration of what we're here for. Um, but also, let me be clear about this, it's also bittersweet. Bittersweet, that's what we heard from so many people. So many people still very saddened that George Floyd had to lose his life to spark a conversation about racial injustice, about law enforcement, just about the racial divide in this nation. Last night, President Joe Biden also speaking about the verdict. The murder of George Floyd launched a summer of protest we hadn't seen since the civil rights era in the 60s. Protests that unified people of every race and generation in peace and with purpose to say enough, enough, enough of this senseless killings. So, Brian, what this all means for this city, for this nation, for, the, for law enforcement, especially related to communities of color, that remains to be seen. But it certainly feels like in this moment, a page in history has been turned. Back over to you. Well, Frank, what can you tell us about the sentencing now of former police officer Derek Chauvin? Well, Brian, what we're hearing right now, the guidance that we're getting at this moment is that that sentencing would happen sometime in mid-June, potentially very close to Juneteenth, uh, a time when so many people are becoming more aware about racial injustice. We'll have to continue to watch. Brian, we're going to remain here on the ground. One place that we're potentially going to go to is George Floyd Square. That's a place where many residents have basically taken over, very close to the site where George Floyd lost his life. We're expecting memorials and other demonstrations there today. Frank Collin live on the ground in Minneapolis. Frank, we're glad you're there. Thank you very much. We'll see you all day here on CNBC. Take Thank care. you, Brian. All right, you're welcome. All right, let's get back now to the markets. As tough a transition as that is, your next guest making some market waves a few weeks ago by saying he thought bond yields would fall in the coming months, and it's possible they could even go negative heading into next year. So is he changing his mind on this big-time call? Heck no. So let's welcome in one of the biggest names, if not the biggest name in bonds, Guggenheim Scott Minard, who is apparently also a new Miami resident. We'll get to that in a minute. Scott, Glad uh, you're joining us here on this busy Wednesday. Uh, your call made a lot of waves. People thought, well, Minard's fu finally lost it. Are you standing by that call for lower 10-year yields? Uh, well, it wouldn't be the first time, Brian. People thought I lost it. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely standing by it. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons is that um, uh, the hysteria there is over rising interest rates is uh, not very well-founded uh, in fact. 
and uh, you know the data shows me something completely different that uh, ultimately we're going to see rates moving lower uh, over the course of the coming months and uh, that uh, people have become way too bearish on bonds. Well, to be fair, I mean, we have seen a big spike in rates, not since you were last on, which was March 22nd. I think rates are flat to maybe even a little bit down since then. But that violent rise in the months and weeks before that got everybody sort of tripping over themselves to have a higher estimate. You know, 175 on the 10-year, 2%, maybe 2.5%. What are you seeing in the global bond markets, really particularly regard to the U.S., that is, I guess, different than everybody else, Scott. Well, I mean, Brian, I think one of the, the big factors here is that uh, the fiscal stimulus has been uh, largely misunderstood. Um, people are interpreting the increase in government spending as inflationary. And uh, it's been well established that changes in uh, fiscal spending may, in the short run, have a transitory impact on bond yields and and overall price levels, that uh, those uh, changes are just something which occur as a result of the shock of the change in government spending but that ultimately the fundamentals take over. And the fundamentals are that we're still in a disinflation era, uh, that we're seeing big jumps in productivity, and um, that uh, the overall long-term downtrend in rates, which has been in place now for almost 40 years, uh, is still intact. Uh, We haven't uh, violated that downtrend. Uh, and until we do violate that downtrend, uh, you know, I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and, uh, of people who are caught up in this hysteria that inflation is taking off uh, and uh, that, uh, that we're, the great bull market in bond yeah. for the last 40 years has come to an end. Well, let's be clear. Yields go down when there's aggressive buying. More buyers send the price up. Yields go down. Who is going to be the buyer? of U.S. debt in this market? Well, you know, the, uh, we just got past Japanese year-end uh, on March 31st, and we have seen a huge reversal in uh, the flows coming out of Asia. Uh, in, uh, in the weeks leading up to the end of the quarter, we saw outflows, uh, the, the Japanese liquidated holdings there. Uh, that's completely reversed in the last two weeks, and we're seeing major, major inflows. Uh, let's face it, Brian, that the United States is practically the only country in the world uh, that has a, a significant yield above zero. And uh, uh, for the Japanese, where they're, they're locked into the zero bound and their 10-year notes at zero, uh, and with hedging costs being zero at this point because of the low interest rate differential at the uh, the overnight rate, uh, you can buy these our bonds, treasuries, corporate bonds, whatever you want, and hedge them back into yen uh, at, at yields which are substantially above uh, what are available to them. I mean, treasuries uh, in Japan would outyield uh, Japan government bonds by you know 125 to 150 basis points, depending on where you where you purchase on the curve. So there's a lot of money coming in there. Um, the the other thing, though, uh, I think that people are not aware of is right here at home. Uh, we are seeing massive flows coming in from our clients, uh, insurance companies, pension funds, uh, for longer dated uh, assets. And uh, our, our insurance clients, uh, 
that, that represent the largest portion of the assets we manage have had a huge demand uh, from their customers, that is, policyholders, uh, to invest in long-dated fixed-rate annuities of 10 years and longer. Uh, insurance companies mm-hmm. hedge those things, and uh, so immediately when that money flows in, uh, it gets hedged, and, and that's another uh, source of cash for the long end of the curve. If you are right and yields go down, it means bond prices go up, as we just said. Does that necessarily mean, Scott, that U.S. equity markets will go down? Or do you think that bonds can go up, 10 years in particular, and U.S. growth stocks, which benefit from low rates, can also go up? Or is it more of a zero-sum game? Well, you know, it's it's, inter- it's an interesting question, uh, Brian, because uh, there are a lot of people who now believe that there is no diversification value left uh, in bonds because yields are so low. Um, but, uh, you know, there are signs uh, that uh, as interest rates fall that we will see stocks propped up. Uh, of course, going the other direction here, you know, uh, we are coming into a seasonally weak time of the year for stocks. Um, the old adage, sell in May, go away, uh, has been true um, uh, or proven ac- academically. It's empirically true over the last hundred years. Uh, so, you know, it's very likely that we will at some point here see uh, some moderation, if not some decline in equity prices, I think, over uh, the coming months. And that would reinforce uh, uh, a desire to do portfolio reallocation toward fixed income. Uh, and so uh, the the stock market, I think, is ultimately uh, heading higher in the long run, but uh, again, I think uh, any short-term turbulence will be, uh, you know, supportive for uh, bonds all the way around. So you do think, okay? So you do think that, that the equity markets can can move higher as well? And, and I, I would assume, uh, also, I know you love it, the Bitcoin question, Scott, because you made a lot of waves. I don't know what it was a few months ago about four hundred thousand on Bitcoin. You still bullish there? Uh, look, uh, in the long run, Brian, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, we've had such a massive move. I, uh, I first uh, did the uh, work in this uh, when Bitcoin was at 10,000, uh, and uh, that was about the time I made the statement. Given the, the massive move we've had in Bitcoin over the short run, uh, things are, are very frothy, and uh, I, I think we're going to have to have a, a major correction in Bitcoin. Uh, and I've said it before. I think we could pull back to you know twenty to thirty thousand on Bitcoin, which would be you know a fifty percent uh, decline. But uh, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is we've seen these kinds of declines before, and uh, you know I think it's just uh, uh, the normal evolution in what is a longer-term bull market where we'll end up at numbers like four to six hundred thousand dollars eventually on Bitcoin. Wow, but maybe a, a big-time near-term correction in the BTC. Very quickly, and totally outside of any of this, I guess, Scott, is that you are a longtime Californian. Recent headlines that, that you are moving to Miami, that you'll become a Florida resident, you and so many others from New York and California. Why make the move? Can't be the weather. You live in Los Angeles. Right. Well, you know, I mean, the first thing I'd start off with, Brian, is that uh, California is an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I remind people taxes are a powerful thing. 
and uh, the the attempt by the uh, assembly to raise the tax rate to 17 percent uh, without the salt uh, deduction uh, really shows you that uh, you know that would be a massive uh, hit to anybody's income uh, to have you know 17 uh, percent of your your income going to the state and 37 percent going to uh, federal income tax and six percent going to Social Security and two percent going to Medicare. Uh, you're, you're, it's easy to get yourself to a sixty percent marginal tax rate or higher. And so, um, you know, tax policy is is not becoming more friendly. Uh, and uh, you know, I think uh, Miami is a great place in terms of being a, a cultural center, an international hub for finance. And uh, so. Um, you know, I think it's uh, time to to go uh, go where the economic incentives are sending you. And uh, when you look at relative pricing against California, real estate here is cheap. Does that mean that that some of the Guggenheim uh, people that you've got a great team out there in Santa Monica, some of them will be following you to Florida? Will there be a basically a Guggenheim Miami branch? Well, I think what we'll find out over time, uh, Brian, is that we've discovered worker flexibility is in, increasing and in mobility and where you can work from. Uh, and uh, there will probably be opportunities for employees that are in, in higher tax jurisdiction to, uh, um, you know, work in Florida or other tax domiciles where um, uh, the tax rates are lower. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's just... Uh, uh, economic incentives. I just had dinner last night with Art Laffer, uh, who I all know is the king of uh, supply side economics. Mm-hmm. Tax uh, taxes are a powerful thing. They are, and maybe a powerful message as California looks to alter those rates. Scott Minard, we appreciate your views here. Rates going back down, equities up in the long term. Bitcoin could have a near term correction, but long term still bullish. Scott, a real pleasure. Much easier to get you on at this hour when you are on the Eastern Time Zone. Scott, have a great day. Thank you. Uh, You too, Brian. Take care. All right, you too. Take care. All right. There is so much more to do as we roll on. And coming up, major growth meltdown. Exactly what happened at Netflix. New customer growth tanking. We'll ask one shareholder if he's boosting that position as the stock down more than 40 bucks. Apple updating its desktop iMac for the first time in a decade. That enough to get investors excited? We'll find out. And later on, Leon Cooperman versus Senator Elizabeth Warren. Why he is turning down her invitation to testify in front of Congress. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
All right, welcome back. Let's get a check down on some of this morning's other top headlines outside of the world of money and business. For those, let's go to Philip Mena in New York. Good morning, Philip. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Another fatal police shooting, this time in Columbus, Ohio. Police there say that they responded to reports of an attempted stabbing. They later confirmed that a girl was shot and killed by an officer. Relatives identified her as 16-year-old Makia Bryant. Police body cam shows a girl with a knife attempting to stab two people. Police performed CPR at the scene, but Bryant was pronounced dead at the hospital. The mayor says that the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation is conducting an independent probe of the incident and that those findings will be made public. Now to a harrowing rescue by a railway worker in India where a child fell under the tracks as a train approached. A worker springs into action just in time, running along the tracks and lifting the child back to the platform. That heroic worker was also able to jump off the track just before that train reached him. And finally, today marks five years since music legend Prince suddenly died at the age of 57. And to honor the Purple One, Paisley Park, his home and recording studio, will be opening its doors to 14,000 fans free of charge. They'll be able to pay tribute and view the late musician's ashes, which will be displayed in the atrium. Let's look at some of today's big headlines. Brian, back to you. All right, Philip Mena, Philip, dramatic video there from India. Philip, thank you very much. Wow, that was a close call. All right, coming up after the break... What China's premier will have to say on climate change at tomorrow's U.S.-led summit. We'll be right back. Dow Futures up seven points. We'll see you in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Just a little wobbly. Netflix co-CEO Reed Hastings downplaying a major subscriber miss. That stock's sinking 40 bucks in the pre-market. We'll dig in. iMacs, AirTags, and iPads. Oh, my. Apple refreshing its hardware lineup at its first product unveil of the year. But is that enough to turn investor heads and their money? And standing by his big call. Ultimately, we're going to see rates moving lower uh, over the course of the coming months and uh, that uh, people have become way too bearish on bonds. What Guggenheim Scott Miner just told us about the rising rate landscape in a worldwide exchange exclusive all on this Wednesday, April 21st. And this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome or welcome back. Exactly 531 here on the East Coast. Thank you very much for joining us on CNBC. Here's how your money and investments look right now as we are just over halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. We are seeing, well, not a big trend in futures. We are seeing futures. We'll call them exactly flat. Dow up a touch. NASDAQ down a touch. Of course, all this as the Dow, S&P and Russell 2000 all coming off their worst day in nearly a month with the S&P 500 now seeing its first 
two-day losing streak. I guess you could have a two-day streak either way. Down two days in a row for the first time since all the way back in late March. See if this is the start of something more meaningful or just a little pause. And what, by the way, has been a very good April so far. Don't lose sight of the context. All right, a quick sector check. And one of the biggest ETFs focused on banks. That is the KBE. Coming off a more than 3.5% loss yesterday. That's its worst session since February when it fell 5%. And Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, the wildly popular ARKK, now down three sessions in a row. This, as Wood continues to add to her positions in Coinbase. That stock still down from its all-time high, hit all the way back on its debut day, which was a couple of days ago. Still something to watch. All right, now back to some of this morning's top other stories. Bertha Coombs back now with those. Bertha, what is on the menu this morning? Brian, Chinese President Xi Jinping will give a speech tomorrow via video conference at a global leaders climate summit organized by President Biden. This according to Chinese state media. Many are expecting the leaders of the world's two largest economies and the largest carbon polluters to have their first meeting on the sidelines of the summit as tensions simmer. Leon Cooperman declining Senator Elizabeth Warren's invitation to testify at a Senate hearing on taxes next week. He is calling her very public outreach to him, quote, self-serving and disingenuous. In response to our own Scott Wapner, Cooperman says, quote, as has been the case since we first locked horns on this matter during her failed presidential bid, she is looking to grandstand at my expense and to use this hearing as a platform to advance her own agenda. I'm not interested in being pilloried by her while she uses me as a foil to promote her far-left manifesto. Cooperman adding he prefers a progressive income tax and funding progressive government programs through revenue-neutral proposals. And Foxconn is scaling back plans for its proposed $10 billion display plant in Wisconsin. Once called the eighth wonder of the world by former President Trump, the company now plans to invest as much as $672 million and create some 1,400 jobs by 2025 in order to qualify for $80 million in incentives promised by the state. Brian? Yeah, you know, if I knew we were doing the story, I would have sent my own video. I was there. It's, it's the weirdest thing, Bertha. There's basically a giant clear dome that I think is some kind of data center slash mm. museum, a couple of big warehouses, and then farms and, and some homes down the street. It is There's a bunch of new roads that kind of lead to nowhere. It's pretty, pretty interesting there at Foxconn. Bertha, thank you. Maybe I'll post those pictures a bit later on so you all can see them. All right. Well, the big stock story of the day, Netflix. Ouch. Shares down over 40 bucks right now. The big problem, a big miss on new customer ads. Only 4 million new ads. Wall Street wanted over 6 million. Company also saying it expects to add only 1 million subscribers in the next quarter. And that may sound like a lot, but that is the first time they have ever projected growth at less than 2 million. Joining us now, Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher and Granite Investment Advisors partner Timothy Lesko. Sarah, I'll start with you. Are we at just peak Netflix? Everybody that wants it already has it? Or is maybe there's some kind of crackdown on password sharing at play here? What do you think is going on with Netflix? And don't tell me it's 
everybody going back out to the movies, or maybe it is. I definitely think we are peak Netflix in the United States, Brian. That's one of their big issues. And it has been actually for a few quarters. It's saturation here in the States, especially while new competitors launch here. Now, if you take a look at what's happening globally, remember some of their domestic competitors. Think about Disney Plus and now a little bit of HBO Max. They're also starting to grow overseas. And so that's squeezing them a little bit. You know, Netflix's response is, look, we didn't add as many subscribers this quarter because we just added so many in the back half of 2020 during the pandemic. But what I'm curious about, Brian, is whether or not this trend continues. If they can't get out of that 200 million subscriber number range within a significant amount of time, we're going to see some of these streaming mm-hmm. competitors catch up. Disney's now over 100 million. Amazon Prime has over 200 million subscribers worldwide. It's going to be tough. Yeah, Tim, you wonder, does everybody here, to Sarah's point, have it, you know, that are, that wants it? International has obviously been the big story as well. What do you think is going on with Netflix? And are you a buyer on the weakness? Well, they did report 24% growth. So let's not lose the fact that they're doing very well. They're actually making money now as a streaming provider where for years they grew on borrowed money. So underlying it, the numbers are fundamentally pretty good. What the slowdown in subscriber growth means, it's still growth, and we're not sure what the source of that weakness was. I believe a little bit that you had a big pull forward last year, and you're going to begin to see some softness in the legacy streaming businesses like like Netflix, as Apple, as Disney, as HBO, all begin to add subscribers. So it is getting to be a saturated market, but it can still be a very profitable market. Yeah, and I and we hear your point, Tim, very, very well, but this is Netflix, and it's, you know, it's, hey, you've been so hot and so great for so long, we just kind of expect it. Do, maybe do we need to ratchet down those expectations for Netflix and realize it's still a growth company, but it's never going to be the company it was simply from the law of large numbers? Right. Certainly the law of large numbers is going to catch up with them to a degree. They have a large total addressable market globally. They also have not had a lot of productions. You've had the global pandemic didn't just slow down restaurants and hotels. It basically put a stop to a lot of production. You don't have any movies coming out in the theater, and you don't have a lot of new shows like A Stranger Things, like An Orange is the New Black, that are driving subscriber growth. So they're spending $17 billion on content, and the expectation is that some of that content will begin to drive an increase in subscribers again. Yeah, you know, Sarah, it's a weird world because, you know, all these TV shows and movies, everything, well, not just that, our lives, put on pause. I've got to imagine there's going to be at some point just this massive unveiling of all these new shows, not just Netflix, everything, all these new movies that have just been in stasis for the last 12 months. Yeah, well, Netflix gave us some guidance on that yesterday in their video call they said look some of our hit sequels think about you think about cobra kai the witcher they're going to come back in q4 so they think that the big bloat that you're talking about production pause production comes back is closer to the end of the year and they're hopeful that that's going to bring in new subscribers when that programming comes back but i do also want to say it's not like netflix had nothing over the past year i mean they had bridgerton which was a huge success not just here but also around the world they had some really big movies i mean netflix broke records with 35 oscar nominations we'll see how they do this sunday so they did have a little bit of programming throughout this period but yes to your point it's 
going to get a lot better for them towards the end of the year when production comes out and when they're going to be able to put more stuff in front of consumers. I, if I can't name one movie. I'm sure you can, Sarah, a lot more dialed in. And so I couldn't name one movie that's up for any award at all. Uh, let's move on. We'll talk more about, by the way, another TV studio. You might have heard about them. They're called Apple. And aside from producing TV shows, they unveiled a bunch of new stuff yesterday. They updated the iMac for the first time in a decade. They rolled out a new iPad Pro with 5G tech, also a new Apple TV with 4K, and mercifully, a bigger remote. Thank you, Apple. And also a new tracking gadget called the AirTag, which you can slap on anything you don't want to lose. Now, investors seemingly not impressed with the launch. Shares of Apple down 2% as the event wrapped up, down again this morning, but still doing pretty well overall on the last couple of weeks. Tim, are you an owner of Apple? Are you a longtime holder of Apple? What's your take on Apple? Well, certainly we've been a long-term holder of Apple. We continue to be a holder of Apple and would buy a position for new money as it came in the door. Um, The stock had such a wonderful run last year. It's been relatively flat since September. So you have a stock that's been consolidating for a while. And then we'll see if these new products begin to push a little bit more growth. The story you know, to their credit in some ways, and maybe to their detriment has still been the iPhone and the success of the iPhone 12. But with the TV, with the air tags, with more and more wearable devices, um, they're really going after the services. Um, The iPad was probably the star of the show. And think about the Zoom world or the Skype world we're living in. It's the front facing camera that matters now more than the pictures you're taking. Uh, Very well said, sir. I think Tim nailed it. I mean, you got to have that monthly revenue, whether it's podcasts, Apple TV, iCloud, Apple Music. Pretty soon you look at your monthly credit card report and go, I'm dropping 45 bucks a month to Apple. But it, I will say this, Sarah, and I love Apple, and I love what Tim Cook has done. I've been at many of these events, so I say this with love and affection. It feels like these Apple events, I understand there's a global pandemic. You might have heard about that. But it's like, now we're going to unveil gravy for the potatoes. It's like, maybe they should hold them until there's something big. Yeah, I mean, I think that they keep momentum, not just for investors, but also for consumers, which is helpful. It also gives me a snapshot into what they're working on. So I appreciate them from that lens. But I agree, the services business is going to become crucial as hardware sales continue to slow down. What I'm looking at, though, Brian, is they continue to take this 30% cut from people that make transactions through their app store. It's the same thing they've always done. They're going to continue to apply it to new uh, products in the software business. They said yesterday that podcast creators, they're going to have a 30% of their revenue be taken by Apple. Now, the reason that matters is because Apple is undergoing so much antitrust scrutiny. I'm in Washington right now, so I hear about it all the time. And it's about this 30% cut. It's about dominance through their app store and through their software services. So what I'm looking at is as they continue to venture into this space, how does that reckon with some of the regulatory scrutiny that they're facing? And it's only going to increase as they focus on services. That's not something that Apple's really had to worry about for a long time up until now. Yeah, and we'll see what happens. It's not moving the stock right now. Again, the air tags may be cool, but you just wonder if they're gonna if they're gonna move the needle. Now we're gonna unveil a keyboard with two W's. Sarah Fisher, Tim Lesko on Netflix and on Apple. Thank you both very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Brian. All right, you're welcome. Coming up, why it's all about the Benjamins in today's greenbacked RBI. But first, as we had to break some of your other top headlines on this Wednesday, 
Discord ending deal talks with Microsoft. The private messaging platform decided to remain independent for now and focus on expanding its business as a standalone company. Microsoft had been in talks to buy Discord over $10 billion last month. The European Super League soccer competition crumbling as all six English football clubs have now pulled out. The new league faced widespread backlash on every side from fans to managers and even politicians. The remaining Spanish and Italian teams are now left to decide how they might redesign this planned league. And workplace software company UiPath settling for an IPO at a reduced valuation. Company pricing its IPO at 56 bucks a share. It was above the expected range. Company begins trading today. And the NYSE under the ticker PATH. Our PATH is right back after this short break with Dow Futures down 20. Time now for your morning RBI. And this random and hopefully interesting stat has to do with something that kind of has to do with everything. The U.S. dollar. Now, we talk a lot on this show about how much everything is up in price lately. Stocks, bonds, cryptos, art, NFTs, real estate, lumber, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that is down is the U.S. dollar. That's right. The greenback is in the red. The dollar index, the only major index down this year, off about 9% in the past 12 months and down about 2% this month. Now, I think I know what you might be thinking. 2% doesn't sound like much, Sullivan. And it's not for anything but the currency market. 2% is actually a pretty big move and one that can impact a lot of the stuff if it continues. Everything from oil prices and your purchasing power. A lot of folks hate a weaker dollar. But remember, dear investor, it can also be very good for big American companies doing business overseas. Think about a Procter & Gamble. You sell in dollars, it's a win anywhere but in the States. Yes, currencies are boring until they're not. And we're seeing a pretty big move that not many are talking about. But watch the dollar and watch big multinational stocks go with it. Random and hopefully informative. All right, on deck, upping her forecast, Morgan Stanley's Ellen Zetner is next with her take on American growth and more. And a reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. You miss the show any day. We're not upset. We just hope you listen on the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or other platforms. We're back after this. We're still in a disinflation era uh, that we're seeing big jumps in productivity. And um, that's uh, the overall long-term downtrend in rates, which has been in place now for almost 40 years, uh, is still intact. Uh, we haven't uh, violated that downtrend, uh, and until we do violate that downtrend, uh, you know, I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and uh, of people who are caught up in this hysteria that inflation is taking off. That was Scott Minard of Guggenheim Partners earlier this morning, right here on Worldwide Exchange in an exclusive. Let's talk more about this and other issues in the American economy with Ellen Zentner, chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Her team recently raising their GDP forecast for the first half of the year to a stunning 9.6%. Not sure I've, I've ever seen a number like that. But Ellen, before that, I want you to comment. Uh, our friend and colleague Jim Cramer tweeting out saying that he thought Scott's call on rates was interesting because it might explain, at least some, 
how rates couldn't go down even if there is what he called incipient inflation. Uh, You're probably not on Scott's side because most aren't, but what do you think about that? Is it possible to have inflation without a meaningful jump in interest rates? Well, isn't that what the Fed's trying to generate here? Um, So far, they've been successful. It's very early days, right? They've been successful so far. We're back to the don't fight the Fed, but it is early days. You know, in the previous segment, you had talked about dollar weakening. Guess what's great for an inflation outlook for a Fed policymaker? Dollar weakening because it puts upward pressure uh, on prices and particularly import prices. You You know that we've been in the camp arguing since the middle of last year that we would be in a higher inflationary environment. Um, but here's why uh, uh, the, the, the long-term downtrend uh, in rates uh, is really just a low-rate trend, not a further downtrend in rates. But when you're carrying debt levels that are this enormous, uh, what it does is it makes every rate increase you do that much more powerful. So you don't need to raise rates as much to get a big impact on the economy. And so that does end up uh, lowering the neutral rate uh, of where you can get to uh, in a cycle. So I think we are in a low interest rate environment. I'm not sure that it continues to trend downward. You you know, I don't know if it was Rocky 1 or Rocky 2, Ellen, but there's a scene where they're trying to make Rocky faster and he's running around trying to catch a chicken. You know, to sort of work on his foot speed. Now, I wonder, it felt like that's the Fed with inflation. Inflation, of course, is the chicken, not Rocky. Has the Fed lost control or do they still maintain? Are they fast enough? So we all like to think that that they're fast enough, right? But there have been times historically when they've not been fast enough and allowed inflation to go too far. uh, And and uh, and like you said, it can't. They're chasing the chicken and can't get it. I feel like you've just described my my childhood. Uh, and so, um, you know, right now we're still in early days. So they're trying to generate higher inflation. They are willing to accept higher inflation. And they say, hey, if it starts to look like it's getting out of control, we know exactly what to do. But this was something that we argued in, a, in our thesis, a hotter but shorter cycle. Uh, it's one reason why with inflationary pressures, if they start to push the envelope of that ceiling, sort of implicit ceiling of around two and a half percent on core inflation, uh, that the Fed would have to act. Um, It could be very disruptive for markets. The Fed might have to act quicker than it would have liked to in this cycle, and therefore you precipitate a downturn. So I would think of this as we're going to run a very hot cycle, and therefore it could be shorter. We shouldn't be sitting here thinking we're going to be in another 10-year expansion. It just it feels like, Ellen, without getting political too much, there's a huge disconnect. When I listen to a lot of our politicians speak, the president or others, I know they're in D.C., the most locked down big city in the United States. And what you see every day sort of defines what you think, right? If you're Chuck Schumer, you come back to New York and you go, oh, New York City's still locked down. What you realize is the rest of the country has done well. In fact, most economic sectors have done better. I understand there's millions of people that are suffering from hospitality, small business, travel and leisure. But outside of that, much of the American economy boomed over the last years. Everybody worked and had excess savings. What I'm saying is stimulus certainly needed in certain parts. I've argued for bigger programs for the hospitality sector. That said, do you think the government has misinterpreted how strong the U.S. economy remained 
even during the pandemic? Did they overshoot, I guess, is the short way to ask the question. So I think what we have to remember is that we can't we don't have a counterfactual of what the economy would look like without all the government support. But I can tell you that it's an economy we would not have wanted to live in. Uh, and so you can't say, have we, have we, it's very difficult to say, have we done enough? Have we done too much? You know, we've performed very well because we didn't have a drop in income at a time when we had a hit to the yep. economy. So we're having this very rapid recovery now. Um, we can argue, uh, yep. have they done too much? I could argue that we, we did too much in this last package. Uh, we did more to plug the hole, but, but it's, it's a difficult argument. Yeah. Well, and it's 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 moot now anyway, at least in as much as it comes to inflation, I guess. The only remaining question, Ellen Zetner, thank you for answering our questions. Ellen, have a great day. Thank you very much. Folks, thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 